Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, Iran-backed Houthis vow revenge. The U.S. and U.K.-led military strikes against the group that's been attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. Where did the U.S. target them and what should we expect to happen next? Israel denies accusations of genocide before the world court. Israel's lawyers say the allegations by South Africa barely mentioned Hamas. Some House Democrats are speaking out against President Biden's handling of the border crisis. They say the administration is not taking enough action and that we need to start deporting people. Arian Pastar brings you a border update. A winter storm threatening GOP candidates' last-ditch efforts to win votes. Iris Tao takes us to Iowa to hear what voters have to say about caucusing in extreme weather. Former President Trump is staying on the 2024 ballot in Oregon. Find out what was threatening his candidacy in the state. Hunter Biden has reversed course. He now says he wants to give closed-door testimony to Congress. Find out what changed his mind. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. First, a quick update on the Buffalo supermarket shooter. The Justice Department plans to pursue the death penalty against Peyton Gendron. The shooter was 19 years old when he killed 10 people at a top supermarket in Buffalo, New York. That was in 2022. All of the victims were black, and the gunman posted his racist motivation online before the attack. He already got a life sentence without parole in New York State, which doesn't allow capital punishment. But today, federal prosecutors officially said they are seeking the death penalty. The next court date is February 2nd. Tensions grow in the Middle East as Iran-backed Houthi forces vow revenge against U.S. and U.K. warships in the Red Sea. NTD's David Zhang has more on this developing story. Yemen's Houthi rebels vowed on Friday fierce retaliation in response to Thursday's U.S. and U.K. military airstrikes. Thursday's strikes took aim at more than 60 targets in 16 different locations across Houthi-controlled areas in Yemen. The Houthis said that the attack killed at least five people and wounded six. The bombardment was in response to recent Houthi-led drone and missile attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. They were given one uh, final warning uh, earlier this month. They chose to ignore it, launched a pretty massive attack on Tuesday against uh, uh, U.S. and coalition ships, uh, and we responded. So they've got, they've got another choice to make. Uh, they need to know that we will stand fully prepared uh, to defend ourselves and defend that shipping if it comes to it. Since November 2023, Houthi rebels have repeatedly targeted ships in the Red Sea saying they are avenging Israel's offensive in Gaza against Hamas. But the Houthis have frequently targeted vessels with no clear links to Israel, disrupting a key route for global trade and energy shipments. Since the start of Israel-Hamas war, Houthis have shown support for Hamas terrorists. On Friday, tens of thousands of Yemenis gathered across the several cities to condemn the U.S. and British strikes. 
However, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, is demanding the Houthis to immediately end their attacks on commercial shipping in accordance with the UN Resolution 2722. The Secretary General stresses the need to avoid acts that could further worsen the situation in Yemen itself. He calls for every effort to be made to ensure that Yemen pursues a path of peace um, and that the work undertaken thus far to end the conflict in Yemen should not be lost. The Houthis say they would continue targeting all ships heading to Israel and warned international shipping companies against using Israeli ports. Thursday's airstrikes marks a dramatic escalation in the West's response to Houthis' assaults on international shipping and raising further international concerns over the tensions in the Red Sea region. We're already seeing some impacts from the strikes. Oil prices jumped 4% amid the tensions in the major shipping route. Multiple tanker companies have temporarily halted traffic toward the Red Sea. And the U.S. Navy warned American-flagged vessels to steer clear of areas around Yemen. Israel staunchly defends itself against allegations of genocide. At the International Court of Justice, an Israeli lawyer says there could hardly be a charge more false. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. At the International Court of Justice on Friday, Israel denied South Africa's allegation that it's committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. Israeli lawyer Tal Becker says Hamas is largely to blame for the civilian casualties. Unparalleled and unprecedented is the degree to which Hamas has entrenched itself within the civilian population. Hamas has systematically and unlawfully embedded its military operations, militants and assets throughout Gaza within and beneath densely populated civilian areas. Becker says Hamas is actively sacrificing civilians for its military benefit. He says that South Africa didn't mention this at all in their arguments on Thursday. Israeli lawyer Galit Ragwan says South Africa makes it seem like Israel is operating in Gaza against no armed adversary. In the slides before you, you can see a militant priming projectiles for launch on IDF forces in Gaza. You can see the holes in the residential house to hide and launch them. Here, you can see projectiles discovered underneath a bed in a child's bedroom. Here, a rocket being fired from a school. The launch site is circled in red. Ragwan says that civilian casualties are lawful if they are unintended consequences of achieving a lawful military objective and therefore is not genocide. Becker says Hamas has openly and repeatedly called for killing all Jews, and Israel must defend itself so it can't stop its operations in Gaza. This court is asked to call for an end to operations against the ongoing attacks of an organization that pursues an actual genocidal agenda, an organization that has violated every past ceasefire and used it to rearm and plan new atrocities. Becker points out that South Africa has close relations with Hamas. He notes that a senior Hamas delegation visited South Africa for a solidarity gathering just weeks after the October 7th massacre. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Multiple Democrats are speaking out against the way the Biden administration is handling the border crisis. Meanwhile, the Texas National Guard is taking control of a public park next to the border. NTD's Arian Pazdar has an immigration update. 
A few House Democrats say they disagree with President Biden's handling of the immigration crisis. Texas Democrat Vicente Gonzalez told Punchbowl News that we need to enforce immigration laws on the border. We need to start removing people. New Mexico Democrat Gabe Vasquez says the administration has taken too long to take serious action on some important border reforms. And Texas Democrat Henry Quaylor told Forbes he doesn't agree with how Biden's handled the border either. If I was advising the president, I would have done this. I would have told him, look at the American public, tell them there's an immigration crisis. It's okay to use crisis. Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio and others are introducing a bill today. It would force Homeland Security to deport individuals if their visa is revoked on security-related grounds. Rubio said in a statement that supporting terrorism disqualifies individuals from having a visa and we should not allow these individuals to remain in our country based on the whims of this administration. Under current U.S. law, such individuals could stay in the country. Meanwhile, the Texas National Guard is taking over a public park in Eagle Pass. This video from Fox News shows the guardsmen barricading their location. Texas Governor Greg Abbott commenting on the video says, We are making clear that Texas will be a tough place to cross. And lastly, New York City Mayor Eric Adams tells ABC he did the right thing when he closed a school to house illegal immigrants this week. He took the step due to extreme winter conditions, which Adams says could have been dangerous for immigrant kids. We did the right thing, and those parents <coughs> who are stating that we can't inconvenience someone for one day because of other children, that's not acceptable, and I'm not going to put children in harm's way. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. GP candidates' final sprint to get votes in Iowa again derailed by a winter storm, and extreme temperatures are threatening voter turnout next Monday. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from Des Moines, Iowa. Pretty much all the campaign events are canceled today in Iowa as the majority of the state is under a blizzard warning going from today into Saturday. We're expecting some 6 to 10 inches of snow and winds reaching some 40 miles per hour. Nikki Haley canceled all three of her in-person events and today changing down to a virtual format. Governor Ron DeSantis made it to one of his events this morning but canceled everything afterwards. Former President Trump's campaign also canceled a Carrie Lake event, but this is is not even the worst yet. Temperatures are going to plunge starting tonight. On, on Monday, caucus day is going to be the coldest caucus day ever on record. Meanwhile, around 6 o'clock on Monday, when voters actually need to go out to caucus, and temperatures will reach below zero, around negative 2 degrees, and with the wind chills, it's going to feel like some negative 20 degrees. A voter here in Iowa told me today that she's fine with the cold, but if it's going to snow like today, she's not going to go out to caucus. Watch. So if the weather is like this, I might stay in. <laughs> I'm a firm believer of it's in God's hands. So if it's meant to be, it'll be. So the cold is fine for you? Yeah. Cold is fine. I can deal with the cold because you can still travel safely in the cold. It's just the snow. and. But all the presidential candidates are sounding pretty confident about the next Monday's turnout. For example, former President Trump telling us over the weekend that he thinks his voters are loyal and motivated enough to support him, that they're going to be willing to walk on glass for him. His team telling us, you know, just wear a coat. Iowans are used to this kind of cold and snow. Meanwhile, Governor Ron DeSantis saying this at his campaign headquarters today. Watch. 
Uh, I don't necessarily, as a Floridian, want to be in negative 20 degree temperature, but I know we're the campaign that's built to turn out our people in negative and Nikki Haley is saying today that she is concerned because she wants people to stay safe. But at the same time, she says she has faith that Iowans will still come out to caucus. Back to you. NTD News will bring you live coverage of the 2024 Iowa caucuses this coming Monday. Our dedicated reporters and esteemed expert panels will provide real-time updates and in-depth analysis. Join Steve Lance and myself on The Nation Decides 2024 as we break down the action live on Monday, January 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be a historic night, so be sure to tune in. In other election news, former President Trump is still on the 2024 ballot in Oregon. The state Supreme Court decided not to hear a case on his possible removal. The state court is waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to rule on Trump's eligibility. The liberal advocacy group Free Speech for People filed a lawsuit last year. They cited the 14th Amendment's insurrection ban. Colorado and Maine removed Trump from their primary ballots. Those who did it accused Trump of being involved in the January 6th Capitol breach. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments on the Colorado case next month. Oregon's primary isn't until May, but names on the ballot have to be finalized by mid-March. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, said today he'll testify behind closed doors to lawmakers. This comes as Republican House members prepare to hold him in contempt of Congress. The younger Biden said through a lawyer in a letter to House Republican leaders that he would comply with a subpoena to appear, but only if a new subpoena is issued. His lawyer, Ab Lowell, claimed that the original subpoenas issued in December were legally invalid because they came before the House approved an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise said today that the House would vote next week to hold Hunter in contempt of Congress. Coming up, a challenger to former President Trump arrested on federal tax charges. The long-shot presidential candidate tried getting Trump off multiple state ballots. Self-proclaimed moderate Democrat Senator Joe Manchin spoke at an event in New Hampshire typically preserved for political candidates, but he says he's not running for president. Find out why he's there. Physicians on Capitol Hill pointing to piles of data that they say clearly shows the COVID-19 vaccines aren't safe. Why is much of the medical community still silent? And a report says Huawei has ended lobbying operations in D.C., but our guest says the Chinese telecom giant will find other ways to influence policymakers. We'll have that and more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. In Georgia, a judge is granting one of Trump's co-defendants a three-month delay in his proceedings. That's in the Fulton County election interference case. The defendant in question is Georgia State Senator Sean Still. Still now has until mid-April to file any pretrial motions. The deadline for all other filings stays in place. 
A long-shot Republican presidential candidate arrested on federal tax charges. John Anthony Castro repeatedly tried getting former President Trump off the 2024 ballot. Now he's facing charges. Castro was charged with aiding the preparation of false tax returns. The Department of Justice says Castro generated false deductions for his customers while running a virtual tax business. In 2018, Castro allegedly filed fraudulent deductions for an undercover DOJ agent. Castro now criticizes the timing of his arrest and the charges years after the undercover agent's involvement. Castro started suing Trump a few months ago. He says the government going after him now is intentional targeting and political retaliation. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he's not campaigning, but it sure looks like it. He spoke in New Hampshire today at an independent forum for presidential candidates and others seeking political support. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Thanks to St. Anselm's College. Senator Joe Manchin enters the political conversation less than two weeks before the first official primary election, but he says he's not campaigning. I'm here basically concerned about my country the same as you are. So whatever, I've said this, I have a burning desire to save the country, whatever it takes. The New England Council and St. Anselm College hosted this event called Politics and Eggs. It's typically reserved for candidates running for public office. Manchin also talked about the nonprofit called Americans Together. It supports moderate candidates and aims to create fairer and more competitive elections. Are we going to stand up and basically fight back to get this great country of ours back on track? Manchin addressed the same issues that the presidential candidates are campaigning on, such as energy and inflation. He weighed in on former President Trump. You know, when you have a person who believes that the rule of law is for you and not for me, when you have a person that believes that basically the only fair election, the one I win, it's not who we are. And President Biden. When he got elected, and I think people were looking for some normality, uh, that's my best word, normality. He's been pushed to the far left. That's the only thing I've said. And I don't know whether it's just basically the, the hey, you owe me because I got you elected and this and that. Manchin said he would love to see Biden move back to where people thought he was in the middle. This was Manchin's second visit to the first primary state in less than a year. While Manchin is busy not running for president, Independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is ramping up his quest to get on the ballot in all 50 states. He's set to meet disenchanted North Carolina voters Friday night. North Carolina requires candidates to gather about 83,000 signatures from voters who voted in the most recent gubernatorial election. Kennedy filed a petition with the State Board of Elections on November 1st, but his campaign hasn't submitted any signatures to the Board of Elections. Next stops after North Carolina include Atlanta on Sunday, Honolulu on January 18th, and Charleston, West Virginia on January 27th. Arlene Richards, NTD News. A group of physicians on Capitol Hill today shedding light on the adverse side effects of COVID-19 vaccinations. Data they say clearly shows the vaccines aren't safe. Yet why is the medical community still silent? NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill that if something has a harm, there must be freedom of choice. As you add vaccines, your risk to get COVID goes up. I've never seen a vaccine like this. That's the truth that this group of doctors has faced backlash for exposing. They've spent years researching the adverse side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine, such as an increase in heart illnesses. Is proven 
to cause heart damage and myocarditis. There's actually guidelines now in the UK and Australia about how to diagnose and manage vaccine myocarditis. That's how common this is. And they say that's just scratching the surface of the true consequences. Senator Ron Johnson tells us there should be much more attention on the deaths related to this vaccine versus others. The deaths per million doses for the COVID vaccine is 25.1. You compare that to the flu vaccine, which was 0.46. It's a 55-fold increase. I think one lot of Moderna had 440 deaths per million doses. To me, the, these are shocking numbers. And with data like this publicly available, Congressman Andy Biggs asked the question, why is the medical community silent? Does the government work for the people or does the government work for industry? FDA is captured by pharmaceutical companies in terms of how much money, how, what percentage of their budget they get from pharma. Dr. Peter McCullough points out that all vaccines have unavoidable harms, but that repeated doses of COVID-19 vaccines have been pushed at an unprecedented level. We see the COVID vaccines on the CDC vaccine schedule for children, but it can't be ignored anymore. The issue must be forced. World leaders in the WHO are now working on a global pandemic preparedness treaty. Some lawmakers have argued that this would take away U.S. sovereignty when it comes to how we respond to global pandemics. Senator Ron Johnson tried to push a bill to block this treaty from going into effect without first having Congress's approval, but that effort failed in the Senate. Now he's urging the Republican-led House to take action. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A recent report says blacklisted Chinese telecom giant Huawei has ended in-person lobbying operations in Washington, D.C. That's after spending over $13 million on lobbying over the past decade. But is the Chinese company going to be gone from the U.S. political scene? We spoke with Casey Fleming, CEO of Black Ops Partners, about the news. Casey Fleming, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Chinese telecom giant Huawei has ended its lobbying operations in the U.S. Now, this is after years of maintaining a presence in the U.S. despite being blacklisted. Now, how significant is this move? Is this a win? It's not really a win. It's a political move. Uh, if we think that they have ended lobbying, they absolutely would not. That's not part of the CCP's plan. So they will tell you that, but they will use other methods to get their lobbying accomplished. That's uh, from someone who's been doing this a very long time. Now, Huawei has spent over $13 million on lobbying over the last decade. That's according to federal filings. Now, is it becoming harder for foreign companies to lobby in the states or because of these global tensions that we're seeing? Or is this just a one-off case with Huawei? It's from what we're seeing uh, in with our companies and uh, our businesses and the folks that we consult to. Um, this is not the standard. Lobbying is in full force. It is full on. And this, uh, you know, the ban really caused this piece of it. So you have to understand China, which is also the CCP, um, they say that water finds its way down a mountain, whether if it it comes up against a rock, it'll go around that rock. So you have to understand that's the way they think and the way that they operate. And uh, <clears throat> so the point is, if there's a ban on lobbying or a ban on Huawei, they're going to go to other methods to get their uh, their objective. 
Hmm. And now for more than a decade, officials in the U.S. have been warning that Huawei has the ability to spy with its gear. This is also following multiple reports of Huawei gear close to sensitive U.S. military sites. Now, do you see this notice of an end to the lobbying as a result of greater awareness of the CCP's infiltration and espionage? Yes, uh, the ban does say, uh, does state or uh, infer that we're waking up to really what Huawei is all about. You have to understand Huawei is the technology backbone to the CCP strategy uh, of of influence, espionage, and uh, infiltration. So Huawei is that piece of it. And don't forget Huawei's origination, okay, where it came from. Huawei was born out of stolen IP and data from Northern Telecom, which was the AT&T of Canada, the largest employer of Canada, and the oldest employer in Canada. And they were founded in 1895. So Huawei got its beginning from absolutely stealing all the IP and data and basically murdering a company, which was Nortel Northern Telecom in Canada. Now, on your note of water always finding a way, one of the lobbyists who's left Huawei is now working for Goshen. That's the battery company with ties to the Chinese Communist Party that's making headlines in Michigan. Now, what would it take to ensure that Americans' national security isn't under attack while also maintaining America's mixed economy? We're at the point right now where there's a couple of things that need to happen. Number one, Americans need to vote for candidates that are going to end all foreign influence, whether it's uh, you know financial gain, uh, influence gain, it doesn't matter. But we need to stop foreign influence from affecting our government, our businesses, and, uh, and our real estate. Um, if we can't buy property in China, why can they buy it here? If we can't uh, influence the Chinese government, why are we allowing it here? If we can't influence Chinese schools, why can they do it here? If we can't access the Chinese uh, internet and influence their people through social media, why can they do it here? So you have to understand, why are we allowing that? Why are we allowing it as American citizens, each American citizen, and why are we allowing our lawmakers to allow it to happen? It needs to end. And the violation for that needs to be treason. And there needs to be complete ban, federal law. And if you violate the federal ban um, and federal law, then it's, uh, it's treason because we're talking about national security now. Casey Fleming, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Taiwan is gearing up for its presidential election this Saturday. The favorite candidate is Taiwan's current vice president, William Lai. Beijing wants him out, accusing him of being a separatist. The international community has realized the threat China poses to Taiwan and the international community. In fact, everyone is already preparing to respond. We should strengthen our own strength and unite and cooperate to ensure peace. The Chinese regime sees Taiwan as part of China's, despite never having ruled the island. Beijing prefers either of the other two candidates, both of, both of whom have a softer stance on communist China. U.S. officials are accusing the CCP of meddling in Taiwan's upcoming election. The U.S. also plans to send an unofficial delegation to Taiwan, regardless of the results. For more in-depth coverage of the Taiwan election, including the nuances and other candidates' approach to Beijing and how the election results could impact the U.S., join me tonight on China in Focus at 9.30 Eastern Time here on NTD. 
Coming up, some fear the U.S. airstrikes against the Houthis will escalate tensions. A Middle East affairs analyst offers us his take. And two recent avalanches, one in Idaho, another in California, both disasters claiming lives. We'll have details on that and more when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. A winter storm derailed campaign events in Iowa and extreme temperatures are threatening voter turnout for the caucuses on Monday. Hunter Biden reversed his previous stance and agreed to testify privately before Congress. His lawyer said Hunter Biden would comply with a subpoena, but only if a new one is issued. At least three Democratic House members said they disagree with President Biden on the border crisis. This was while the Texas National Guard took control of a public park in Eagle Pass near the border. Israel's legal team presented their defense at the International Court of Justice. They denied South Africa's allegation that Israel committed genocide in Gaza and said Hamas is largely to blame for the civilian casualties. The U.S. and allies conducted airstrikes against dozens of Houthi targets in Yemen. The Iran-backed Houthis vowed revenge against U.S. and U.K. warships in the Red Sea. Are the airstrikes going to escalate or de-escalate tensions in the Middle East? And did President Biden need approval from Congress to order the strikes? Joining us now to discuss the U.S. action against the Houthis, we have David Wormser, Middle East Affairs Analyst at the Center for Security Policy. David Wormser, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Well, it's always great to be on. Thank you. Now, the U.S. and U.K. have launched airstrikes against the Houthis in Yemen. This follows attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Now, how do you read this? Will it lead to escalation or de-escalation? I don't think it'll change. Uh, it, it'll probably not lead to a great escalation. Uh, but largely because the Iranians and the Houthis are all operating under a certain strategy, and I don't think this changes it that much. The question is, will it deter them? I think the United States' hope was that once we show that we're serious and that we hit them, uh, that they'll back down and they'll stop this sort of stuff. But I don't think there's a sign that they'll do that either. So I don't think it changes that much. It will only change if the Iranians sense a fundamental shift in U.S. strategy. And what they sense from this strike is that we were serious about it, but not serious enough to go beyond the deterrence strategy and actually take them on regionally, strategically. So I, I don't think that they've been deterred, is what I'm, I'm basically saying. Hmm. And on that note, Iran is saying that these attacks will feel instability in the region. Now, others are saying Iran is the source of instability. Which is it, or could it actually be a bit of both? Well, I mean, Iran has hit us 140 times, U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. It has sent hundreds, if not even thousands, of missiles into Israel from Hezbollah in Lebanon. It established and trained Hamas, which started this whole war on October 7th. And it's really the uh, puppeteer behind the puppet, the Houthis, in Yemen. So this is all an Iranian-orchestrated violence. So for them to say it will destabilize, it really only depends on how much they feel confident in escalating. Uh, they're already destabilizing the region wherever they're able to, and we didn't even mention the nuclear program. So it really 
the Iranian accusation that will cause instability, I think it should be dismissed. The real question is, what do we do to convince them or to actually put them on the defensive so that they get scared and they back off? Hmm. On that note, President Biden is calling these airstrikes defensive, while Iran is saying the U.S. will pay. Where do you see all of this going? Well, I, I think he annuls the value of the airstrikes by, first of all, having warned the Houthis hours, if not a day in advance, so that they removed all the valuable personnel and, and, and equipment, uh, number one. Number two, I think that this apologetic attitude toward the strike and then the promise that we don't mean to escalate calms the Houthis and calms the Iranians, which is the last thing you want to do. You want them to feel like they have crossed some lines and that they should be scared. And if they're scared, they'll back off and they'll, they'll start recalibrating their strategy. So I think on some level, our statements following the attack and the way we behave before the attack unfortunately annul the value of the attack. In terms of the U.S., President Biden's move to order these strikes has come under fire from both parties. Several Democrats are calling the move unconstitutional because Biden did not first seek Congress's approval. What's your understanding of this? Well, our, the U.S. Constitution makes it very clear two things. One is the president's in charge of our defense, and, and more, more importantly, if there's an acute defense need, even the War Powers Act of the 1970s doesn't, doesn't annul that or doesn't overpower that. The second thing is I mentioned the Constitution because in it it says we need to maintain a Navy, raise an army, but maintain a Navy. So it's constitutionally mandated to have a Navy. And the reason for that is because it was a core interest or core value of the United States is freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation. And that because our country was built on trade, uh, where it was surrounded by seas. So freedom of the seas is an absolute, even enshrined in the Constitution, essentially. So this is a standing mission of our armed forces for 200 some years. And uh, it doesn't need the war powers to protect our right to pass through uh, vital sea lanes. The second thing is 20% of the world's trade goes through the Babalmandeb Strait and Suez Canal. And this was shutting it down. It has shut it down. So this was a vital interest. So this was an act of self-defense, almost an acute act of self-defense that, that doesn't really require the War Powers Act. So was President Biden's call the right one in this case? I believe it was because we're not declaring war on Yemen. We are declaring that we are trying to keep the straits open. As long as it's that, then, then I think he's within the constitutional rights to do this. If he expands the war and makes it an ongoing campaign against Yemen, then it gets into a more dicey territory. David Wormser, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Another avalanche, this time in a remote area in Idaho, and more updates on the California avalanche that ripped through a ski resort near Lake Tahoe. Authorities said two men were rescued after being caught in an avalanche in the Idaho backcountry, while a third man was believed to be dead. According to the Shoshone County Sheriff's Office, a rescue effort began shortly before 3 p.m. Thursday when law enforcement received a GPS alert of a possible fatality in an avalanche near Stevens Peak, close to the Montana border. A search and rescue effort began with help from the Kootenai County Sheriff's Office and the U.S. Air Force. 
Two men were located and transported for medical care. The third is believed to have perished at the site. Authorities did not say what the three people were doing in the area. The area had been under an avalanche danger warning for several days because heavy snowfall and strong winds had created unstable conditions on high, steep slopes. The avalanche came a day after the first U.S. avalanche death of the season was reported in California. An avalanche roared through a section of expert trails at the Palisades Tahoe Ski Resort near Lake Tahoe on Wednesday morning, trapping four people and killing one. A second avalanche struck the same area near Lake Tahoe on Thursday, but there were no reported casualties. In neighboring Oregon, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear a case on homelessness. Two homeless people challenged a city ordinance in Grant Pass that allows police to issue tickets to people camping in public places. They argued it violates the Constitution's limit on cruel and unusual punishment. A lower court agreed, saying you can't stop people from sleeping in public spaces if you don't provide an alternative. Grant Pass doesn't have a homeless shelter. Homeless encampments have become an issue in many major cities. Officials in Phoenix, San Francisco and Los Angeles urged the justices to hear the case. Coming up, automated receipt checks. Sam's Club plans to use artificial intelligence to check purchases before shoppers leave the store. And Senator Marco Rubio weighed in on a U.S. boxing's rule to allow transgender athletes to compete in the women's division. Dave Martin joins us in the studio to discuss when we return. Welcome back. Showing your receipt when leaving Sam's Club might become a thing of the past. New technology is rolling out this year that automates the process. Entity's Jason Blair has more. Shoppers at Sam's Club will soon be able to avoid showing their receipt to a staff member when exiting. A new application leveraging a first-of-its-kind combination of artificial intelligence and computer vision technology will automate the process. Whether the customer uses Sam's Club's scan-and-go system or checks out at a register, their carts will be scanned while leaving, matching their items with their receipt without having to stop. Chris Nicholas, the company's CEO, said in a statement, quote, We are constantly looking at ways for Sam's Club to be the most convenient membership club and will continue to prioritize using technology to provide a truly differentiated and delightful experience for our members. Sam's Club currently has the feature at 10 pilot locations and plan on expanding to almost all of their 600 U.S. stores by the end of this year. Jason Blair, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the NFL playoffs start tomorrow with six games spread over three days. What matchups are you looking at? Well, pretty much all of them, of course. Several of them really stand out. You know, what was first revealed, I like the Steelers versus Bills game. Uh, T.J. Watt and the Steelers defense against Josh Allen and the Bills. But unfortunately, Watt is out with an injury. I think Buffalo is going to roll in that one. The Rams-Lions game should be a good one, too, because it looks like a grudge match. I mean, the two teams traded quarterbacks three years ago, and Jared Goff, he's really revived his career in Detroit. At the same point, you know, the Rams got a Super Bowl win with Matt Stafford out of the trade. I like Detroit in this one, though. I think the Chiefs-Dolphins one will be the best one, though. All-pro receiver Tyreek Hill comes back to Kansas City. The Dolphins are really going to uh, test the Chiefs' stop defense here. Plus, the frigid weather is going to come into play. It's probably going to be in the single digits, uh, which means it's tough to grip the football. Probably will cause some more turnovers. I think the Chiefs will edge them out in a very close 
back and forth game now. Well, now in the college game, ESPN is reporting that Alabama has hired Washington coach Kalen DeBoer to replace, replace Nick Saban. Now, how does his resume compare with other candidates? You know, it's shorter, at least for FBS-level uh, coaching, which used to be called NCAA Division I. He only has four years coaching there with two at Fresno State and two at Washington, but he's won 80% of those games. And of course, he made a name for himself this week, leading Washington all the way to the national championship game. So this stock is definitely on the rise. It kind of reminds me of Urban Meyer's rise uh, two decades ago when he went to Florida. Now, DeBoer, he played NAIA football at Sioux Falls in South Dakota, and then he coached there for five seasons starting in 2005, went 67-3, and winning three national titles. Very impressive. Now, schools usually target like an alum or someone who was a former assistant there, someone they know. This is not the case, but I think they got a real rising star here in DeBoer. Well, now in baseball news, Yankee star outfielder Juan Soto signed a one-year deal for $31 million. That's a record amount for arbitration-eligible players. Now, why isn't he getting a longer contract? Well, he will be soon. You know, I'm sure the three different teams he played for have tried to sign him to a long-term deal. The thing with baseball is that unlike you know, the NBA or the NFL, there's no limit on player or team salaries. You can then maximize that by heading to free agency where it's a free market, anyone can bid on you. But it takes six years to be eligible for that. He's only played five, so one more year for him to go. Now, given that Shohei Otani got $700 million this offseason, I'm sure his, sets, his sights are set high. Uh, I'll grant he's not a two-way star like Otani, but he's probably the best young hitter in the game. Plus, he's only 25. He's five years younger than Otani. So his day will definitely come soon. I'm sure the Yankees are hoping it's with them. Well, now shifting gears a bit, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio wrote a letter urging USA Boxing to reverse their decision to allow transgender athletes into the women's division. Now, what reasons did he give? Well, safety and fairness, of course. You know, now for USA Boxing, these new rules, in addition to identifying as female, the person have to, has to complete a gender assignment surgery and has to have their testosterone levels below a certain amount. Now, I don't know actually who comes up with those levels, but this rule has received plenty of criticism already, including from UFC star Colby Covington, who cited the same reasons, you know, safety and fairness. Now, Senator Rubio also added that it, quote, diminishes womanhood by pretending it's only a matter of surgery and hormone levels, and that it encourages athletes suffering from gender dysphoria to castrate themselves in order to, in order to compete, end quote. Now, this rule went into effect on January 1st of this year. There's been no word on USA Boxing's response so far. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.